Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Mitch Bittleman, who is Professor of Astrophysical and Planetary Sciences at the University of Colorado Boulder and a fellow of the JILA, a joint research institute of the University of Colorado and the National Institute of Standards and Technology. He studies aspects of how black holes form, grow, and interact with their surroundings from a theoretical perspective. Welcome, Mitch. Hello. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So um, I want to start with one of your papers uh, on black holes uh, from 2006 entitled Formation of Supermassive Black Holes by Direct Collapse in Pre-Galactic Halos, uh, in which you say we describe a mechanism by which supermassive black holes can form directly in the nuclei of photogalaxies without the need for seed black holes left over from early star formation. Uh, before we get into this, uh, Mitch, black holes um, is really sort of a discontinuity in space-time uh, when a lot of mass gets concentrated in short spaces. Um, essentially, we have a discontinuity that, that we can quite understand. Um, but there are different uh, masses of these black holes, and some of them are what you call supermassive black holes uh, that tend to be at the center of galaxies, right? Yes, yeah. So there is one, I believe, at the center of the Milky Way galaxy, our own galaxy. And uh, I, I, I guess there are a lot of theories around how they are formed. So this is one of the hypotheses of how they might have formed. Yes, yeah. Um... Black holes are places where you have so much mass concentrated in such a small region that the gravity of that mass is so strong that uh, nothing can escape it once it uh, once it gets trapped. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, they're even weirder than you think. They're not really um, uh, they're not really necessarily made out of matter. They are they are places where um, uh, Einstein tells us that gravity. Is, uh, is really the result of space-time curvature. And there are places where uh, 
where the curvature of space-time is so kinked up that, in fact, it kind of feeds on itself and kind of um, space gets gets uh, gets closed in on itself. So, in in theory, in fact, you could produce a black hole without any mass. But in practice, I mean, just by curving space-time. But in order to get space-time kinked up enough, um, in practice, in the universe, we uh, we know that this happens when large amounts of mass uh, collapse to a small volume. Now. Um, the nearest black holes to us, and by near I mean probably within you know a few hundred light years, so near by my standards, not necessarily by that of uh, many of the listeners, um, those result from the collapse of massive stars that run out of nuclear fuel and just can't hold themselves up against gravity. But we also know that there is a second class of black holes that seems to, uh, in which there seems to be one at the center of every large galaxy and uh, there's still a lot of controversy about how, how those could have formed. Uh, these black holes are responsible for some dramatic phenomena, such as quasars, which are very luminous objects, usually found in uh, far, di uh, quite distant places. Yeah, so when we talk about uh, black holes, you know, we, we, um, we, we think about the event horizon. And so um, what, what you're saying is that uh, the even horizon is sort of a, a boundary. Um, once you cross that, uh, not even light can escape. But it doesn't really uh, mean that's the size of the black hole, right? It just right. sort of a concept, really. Yeah, well, it's the point of no return. It's the yeah. surface beyond which uh, anything that crosses it is lost. So it can no longer communicate with the, uh, the universe outside. And so, there is yeah. there some... Uh, sorry, Mish. I know there was some excitement about this Even Horizon Telescope, um, and I, I don't know that the pictures that they produced are actual pictures or some simulated um, thing. Well, they are. Uh, they're basically images uh, made using a set of radio telescopes. Now, uh, a radio telescope doesn't work in the way where um, you can look through an eyepiece and you you see an image. Um, it's uh, what it what it does is it takes signals that are received by pairs, many different pairs of uh, radio dishes located uh, with large separations. And what you do is you sort of reconstruct um, the appearance of the object that's sending radio waves to these radio telescopes by comparing the signals that any pair of them uh, receives uh, at a given time. Uh, the process the the procedure is called interferometry, and it's used in many different branches of physics. Um, but uh, given that uh, we understand how to reconstruct the the, uh, the images from an interferometer, uh, this re really is an image of uh, of the light that's passing close to a black hole. Yes, and it, it sort of looks like what we imagined it looked like, right? Uh, yep, looks like a hole. <laughs> looks yep. like a hole. And, uh, you know, it is an amazing thing because uh, I think the whole concept started from theory, right? Einstein sort of hypothesized such a thing could exist. Yes. Um, now, I should um, emphasize that what the Event Horizon Telescope has imaged is not really the size of the Event Horizon because the way light is bent close to the Event Horizon, uh, you don't really expect to see an image of... Uh, right outside the event horizon itself. What we're seeing is, is really called the photon ring. And so what it indicates is that there is gas 
sort of surrounding the this black hole, but in particular, there's gas behind the black hole. And some of that light is going in our general direction. And what we're seeing is the way in which the space-time curvature has contoured that light into a ring. And the size of the ring on the sky, taking into account how far away this black hole is, uh, it's about 50 million light years away, um, given the distance, uh, the size of this ring is a few times the size of the event horizon. So we're basically seeing sort of a silhouette kind of offset a little bit uh, from where the actual uh, location of the event horizon would be. Okay. And and that uh, picture that, you know, sort of gotten famous, is that, um, is that the Milky Way um, uh, supermassive black hole? No, no, that's a, the, that's a black hole um, in the center of a galaxy called M87, oh. uh, which is located in the direction of the constellation Virgo. That galaxy is 50 million light years away. The center of the Milky Way is only 25,000 light years away, so it's less than 1,000th the distance. The reason we can image the black hole in M87 is because it's gigantic. Its mass is... Uh, is more than a thousand times that of the mass in the center of the Milky Way. And that is uh, partly uh, reflects the fact that M87 is a much larger galaxy than our Milky Way. And I would imagine if we are trying to image the Milky Way's uh, uh, supermassive black hole, there'll be a lot more interference, right? Uh, there'll be a lot more noise that we'll pick up. Um, in the Milky Way's black hole, the, uh, there's a little a bit of a difficulty uh, in getting a good image, and that's because because the Milky Way's black hole is so much smaller than the one in M87, um, the gas around it is is varying much more quickly, simply because it's a smaller scale. Mm. To construct an image using interferometry takes about, um, really takes about 10 or 12 hours, and the uh, Milky Way black hole is kind of flickering on and off over that time, so it's very difficult to get a good steady image. Um, I think we're very close to that, and I wouldn't be surprised if there's an announcement pretty soon, within the next few months or so, uh, but we don't quite have a good image there yet. And sometimes black holes are more active, sometimes they just sleep for a long time, and, and, the, and the Milky Way's um, supermassive black hole is sort of passive right now, isn't it? Uh, it's very, it's very quiet. Yes, yeah. it's um, there's not much happening. Not much gas is swirling around it and falling in right now. Yeah, right. And so, like you mentioned, you don't necessarily need a lot of mass to create a black hole. It's really a kink in the space-time uh, mm -hmm. fabric. Uh, but but typically, black holes are formed um, by mass. Uh, getting together, and then it starts attracting more mass. It sort of goes on a runaway process. Um, you want to talk a bit about, you know, um, the way that you're thinking about uh, the mechanism that you describe in this paper? Yeah, to form the um, these giant black holes in the centers of galaxies, um, you, you need to bring together um, at least a few million solar masses. That's what happened in the center of the Milky Way. In the case of M87 and other uh, really huge galaxies, it's more like a billion uh, solar masses. And um, it, it turns out that it's not obvious how to collect such huge amounts of material um, in a small enough place to, for it to collapse to form a black hole. Um, in the case of the stellar mass black holes, the ones that re result from uh, the collapse of stars, we know 
that there are stars which are a few tens or even a hundred times the mass of the sun, and that when they run out of nuclear fuel, they will just spontaneously collapse under their own gravity. Um, it's not so simple uh, to figure out how you form a supermassive black hole because there are no um, there are no obvious structures in the universe like stars that have masses of millions of solar masses. In other words, if if gas under ordinary circumstances kind of drifted in towards the central region of a galaxy, we wouldn't expect it to collect all to all collect in the center in a small enough region to form a black hole. We would expect most almost all of that gas to kind of condense into uh, stars on the way in and never quite get to the center. Um, so that led to um, the earliest ideas of how you might form these supermassive black holes is that you just um, form a lot of stellar mass black holes by taking the, you know, the, the stars that form in the center of a galaxy, wait till they form black holes, and then somehow either, uh, either merge those black holes together through you know, collisions or, um, or just wait until they, they accumulate enough mass because of course black holes can grow in mass as they swallow things that fall into them. The problems with that are one, that it's really hard to collide individual black holes because they're pretty small. You know, we say that black holes swallow everything, uh, but to, to get swallowed by a black hole, you have to get pretty close to it. You actually have to get, um, you know, pretty close to the event horizon. So it's very hard to see how even a collection of stellar mass black holes would merge at a fast enough rate to build up these million to billion solar mass black holes. Um, even swallowing gas, um, there are some limiting factors in how fast an individual black hole can swallow gas. I mean, once the stuff gets really close to the horizon, okay, it goes in. Yeah. But uh, in order to get close to the horizon, there's all kinds of uh, things that can get in the way. For example, the gas that's approaching the horizon gets compressed, it heats up, uh, magnetic fields that are present in all, everywhere in the universe build up, and these can actually shoot the gas back out before it even reaches the black hole. So we kind of have a slogan in this business that black holes are fussy eaters, and it, it, it's really <laughs> something that seems to be true. It's not that easy to yeah. feed a black hole a, a lot of material. So, so the ideas that are most obvious about how to create these supermassive black holes don't seem to have a lot of uh, a high likelihood of working. Um, an alternate set of ideas, which I've been involved in, um, and that's the subject of this 2006 paper, is that you can get around this if somehow you can get gas, um, a, a huge amount of gas falling into uh, the center of the galaxy all at once. And then it just builds up to the point where um, uh, you just can't, it, it just can't hold itself up and it, it forms, it, it forms a quite large, not quite supermassive, but a quite large black hole um, very early, maybe of a few thousand to a few hundred thousand times the mass of the sun. Once you do that, it's much easier to understand how such a black hole can grow. So, which so if I understand, understand, understand this correctly, um, it's, it's sort of difficult to build one, uh, build a supermassive black hole incrementally. Mm -hmm. we, we understand the sort of the smaller ones, you know, sudden collapse uh, in a supernova or something like that. Uh, that physics is well understood. Uh, but the idea that you can just sit there and, and keep eating and become a supermassive black hole um, seems to create some issues, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's uh, it's difficult to get a high enough um, rate of mass continuing to uh, build the black hole to to build these supermassive black holes um, in a short enough time. Uh, we do actually know something about how uh, long it took to build these supermassive black holes because quasars, which probably many people have heard of, what quasars are, are black holes that are swallowing matter at a pretty high rate and the matter is getting hot and producing a lot of energy, which we can see with telescopes. And they were um, a bit early in time, right? Maybe a billion. They, they billion. formed very early in the history of the universe. Yeah. So uh, some huge, some very luminous quasars, which means some huge black holes, um, were already formed uh, less than a billion years after the Big Bang. Mm. And to form a black hole that massive so early in the universe requires a huge rate of swallowing. So it's it's very hard to understand how you could have done this starting with very small seeds, you know, the, the mass of a, a few times the mass of the sun. You really need to start with a large initial collapse. And then once you have that, it's much easier to build up these uh, very massive black holes pretty quickly so that quasars can start. Yeah. So, so what does the demographics tell us, Mitch? So if you look at the size of the, the black holes, do we see sort of small ones, and then we see really big ones, and uh, maybe a gap in between? Or what, what do you see from a... Yeah. Uh, well, we see we see a pretty big range of black hole masses, yeah. and there is a, a very good correlation between the mass of the black hole and the mass of the galaxy that uh, that hosts it. Hmm. Um, in fact, they, they seem to go roughly in proportion. So um, it's not surprising, uh, given what we understand about the demographics, it's not surprising that the Milky Way only has a few million solar mass black hole at the center, whereas M87 has a few billion. M87 is a galaxy that's about a thousand times bigger than the Milky Way. Yeah. Now, we can extrapolate this down to galaxies that are even smaller than the Milky Way, and we, we find that this correlation uh, seems to go down to about 100,000 times the mass of the sun. We don't really know what happens below that, but so far um, there does seem to be some kind of a gap between uh, these uh, stellar mass black holes and the supermassive black holes. Um, there's a, there is some evidence that there may be some black holes in the range of a few hundred times the mass of the sun. Yeah. Uh, there's some evidence recently from the uh, LIGO gravitational wave detector, for example, uh, but we, we don't really see a lot of evidence for um, intermediate mass black holes. And right now there's a, uh, a big debate where uh, people are waiting to see if there's a continuous distribution of black holes, suggesting that maybe uh, some of these stellar mass black holes did grow by accumulating from these small seeds, or whether there really is a gap, which would indicate two completely different mechanisms for forming them. Right, so, so the kind of observation is that we have sort of a gap uh, and so this hypothesis that the supermassive black holes are formed uh, by a different mechanism altogether uh, mm -hmm. seems like uh, more intuitive, right? Is that, the, is, that the, is that our current best understanding? Um, I would say there's a split in the community. There's, there's two different camps. Yeah. Um, uh, to me, it seems more intuitive that um, black holes, uh, the seeds of these supermassive black holes formed from some kind of a direct collapse of gas started, you know, giving you maybe a few thousand or hundreds, a hundred thousand uh, solar masses and then going up from there. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but there is still a lot of work aimed at um, at seeing whether um, uh, the formation of these, uh, the growth of these stellar mass black holes might also be viable. And it's quite possible that both mechanisms uh, contributed. Uh, we're just not sure yet. Yeah. Um, without knowing a lot about it, Mitch, you know, when I thought about M87, a billion solar ma masses, Milky Way, a million solar masses, it, it seems like there's a clearly a relationship between the size of the galaxy uh, and the size of the, the black hole. Uh, I would have thought that that sort of implies that the, the black hole in a, in a larger galaxy had more opportunity to eat, but that's not the case, right? Um, yeah, well, I, I, I think that um, that what you're seeing is evidence that um, the assembly of the galaxy uh, was also responsible for the assembly of the black hole. But we do have a chicken and egg problem here. We're not sure whether uh, black holes uh, formed before uh, the main galaxy condensed or whether the galaxy formed first and the, and the black hole formed out of the debris that was left over. That's, uh, that's still very much an open question. Right. Um, the way we think galaxies formed is that um, they form from the hierarchical mergers of smaller galaxies. So the way it works is you form, uh, the first thing we might call a galaxy would be maybe a thousandth the mass of the Milky Way. <clears throat> and it's quite likely that the seed of that eventually became our black hole formed in one of those precursor galaxies that was much smaller. And then as the different pieces assembled, um, this uh, precursor black hole uh, sank to the center and then grew maybe uh, by a factor of, of 100 to become the million solar mass black hole we, we've uh, detected today. Okay. And so, so you say here, um, uh, the mechanisms that you're talking about, um, um, supermassive black holes can form directly in the nuclei of photogalaxies. Uh, mm -hmm. Protogalaxies, sorry. Protogalaxies. So Proto-galaxies don't imply small galaxies, right? It's just early galaxies. Uh, yes, but uh, we think that the current day galaxies that we see formed from uh, much smaller galaxies at earlier times. So right. we're not exactly sure when, these, uh, when most of the supermassive black holes formed. We know a few of them formed very early, but that's probably not the typical ones. Um, but um, the the seeds of the supermassive black holes that formed the uh, that you know led to the giant black holes in M87 and and the Milky Way today could well have have formed initially in uh, fragments that were much smaller than the final galaxy. So, in other words, you know the the um, the picture that we proposed in our 2006 paper, which is just one possible way of doing this, is that uh, you form your first 10,000 or maybe 100,000 solar mass black hole in a galaxy that's uh, only one one-thousandth the size of the Milky Way. Yeah. And then you merge a thousand of these together, each of which may have had a black hole in it, or maybe only one in a thousand had a, a black hole. You merge them all together, and um, that those, um, those thousand pieces which make up the, today's Milky Way would have also a seed leading to the, uh, the Milky Way's million solar mass black hole. Mm. And, and so um, let me know if I understand this correctly, Mitch. So uh, once you get to 100,000 solar mass, uh, mass black hole, then you can sort of go the kind of the Lego process. 
um, meaning that when two galaxies merge, the black holes in them uh, ultimately, you know, dance around for a while and ultimately merge. And so, mm-hmm. so using, using that type of a process, you can get to very large black holes. Uh, some of the growth of the black holes are probably were was due to mergers, but also a a hundred thousand solar mass black hole has a lot uh, less trouble swallowing a huge amount of matter than a ten or one hundred solar mass black hole. So we we also uh, exploit the the fact that if you start with a much larger seed, then the subsequent growth to get a billion or million or a billion solar masses is not that difficult. Um, and if you track the relative, um, the relative uh, prevalence of mergers of black holes versus uh, the likelihood that black holes just swallowed a lot of gas, uh, probably the gas wins. So, so you may have had mergers uh, being uh, important in uh, driving black hole masses from 100,000 to perhaps a few million. But to get much above a million, um, I think most of us have concluded that the uh, that the, just swallowing gas is probably the way to go. And we see evidence of that process happening because we know that um, uh, in, at various points in galactic history, there are episodes when black holes are swallowing a, a lot of matter, and those episodes are visible as quasars. So, so, so when we look back, um, back to quasars, maybe a billion years from, from the Big Bang, how big are those things? Well, um, funny you should ask. To, uh, this week at the meeting of the American Astronomical Society, it was announced that there is a new record holder <laughs> for early and massive black hole. Yeah. Um, and uh, the black hole was observed at what we say is a redshift of 7.6 which means about 650 million years after the Big Bang. Hmm. The mass of this black hole is just under 2 billion solar masses. So it's, it's actually not the largest black hole. Uh, the M87 black hole is 6 billion. Right. Um, but uh, to form a 2 billion solar mass black hole, uh, only 650 million years after the Big Bang is, uh, is quite a feat. So it actually does challenge um, some of the theories of black hole seed formation uh, even more than they've been challenged in the past. So does the prevalence of quasars early in the history of the universe, does that sort of settle the, the chicken and egg problem? Uh, could we actually say it's more, more likely that the supermassive black holes came first and then galaxy formed around it? Um, well, you might you might think that, except uh, these black holes that formed really early, these really early quasars are extremely rare. Oh. And so they probably formed in exceptional regions where there, there is evidence, we, we do see evidence that there's a galaxy, a huge galaxy surrounding uh, this black hole. So, so we do know that there are um, big galaxies that formed this early in the universe. Um, but most of the black hole formation probably occurred much later and it probably is hard to disentangle whether it precedes or follows or is simultaneous with the, um, uh, the development of the galaxy, uh, the host galaxy. Hmm. So, so it's actually, it's a closely run thing. It's really hard to separate which came first. Uh, I think there is some evidence that uh, some black hole formation formed before most of the stars in their host galaxies might have been uh, uh, created. 
but I don't think the evidence is uh, is really that firm yet. Right. Okay. We'll take a we'll take a quick break, Mitch. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk more about black holes. Okay. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So Mitch, uh, we are back. Um, we're talking about black holes, which is sort of a kink in space-time. And there is a good understanding of how they form um, when they are small enough <laughs> to understand them, uh, maybe a few solar masses. Uh, but the center of the, of the galaxies, we have this variety called supermassive black holes. And um, the mechanisms used to describe the formation of smaller ones don't quite work for them. Uh, but you had a hypothesis around this, how that might have, might have happened. Uh, I want to go into another paper that you have entitled Quasi-Stars, uh, Accreting Black Holes Inside Massive Envelopes. Uh, you, you say that we study the structure and evolution of quasi-stars accreting black holes embedded with massive hydrostatic gaseous envelopes. These configurations may model the early growth of supermassive black hole seeds. Uh -huh. Now, this, this sounds to me, without knowing a lot about it, this sounds to me is, is more in the feeding type mechanism, is it? Yes, yeah. So this is, this is after you form that first uh, seed. Uh, through the direct collapse of, of a, uh, a cloud of infoiling gas. Okay, yeah. so, so this is after you get to that thousand, ten thousand solar masses. You already have a pretty big one. Mm -hmm. and the question is, how does that grow to the the you know million solar masses or a billion solar mass uh, black hole we see at the center of galaxies? Right. Um, so the the basic idea is one of the problems with growing a black hole really quickly is there, there is a kind of a, a sense that there should be a growth limit. And the reason for this is that the gas that's about to fall into a black hole gets very hot. It releases a lot of radiation. That radiation tries to stream out while it, while it still can because the gas is still outside the horizon. Well, streaming radiation, radiation escaping from some source, actually exerts pressure. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, e even the radiation from a light bulb exerts a little bit of pressure which is so small that you can't feel it. But if, you, if you're talking about a quasar, uh, the amount of pressure that can be, re, uh, that can be exerted can actually be, uh, exceed the inward force of gravity. So one of the limiting factors that makes it a bit hard to grow a black hole uh, infinitely rapidly um, is this, this back reaction of the radiation. It's called the Eddington limit, named after a, a British astrophysicist of about for about a hundred years ago, um, and uh, that provides a that if you if you say that that's that determines the limiting growth rate, uh, that provides a limit to how quickly a black hole can go from a hundred thousand to maybe uh, ten million, a hundred million, or even a billion solar masses, and that's one of the things uh, the factors that. Uh, creates a problem for understanding how quasars could have uh, turned on so soon after the Big Bang. 
Uh, well, the quasi-star idea exploits the fact that um, if a black hole seed forms from this collapse, not all the gas is going to collapse simultaneously to form a black hole. There's going to be a, a remnant of, uh, quite a massive remnant of gas left behind. Uh, and that's simply because the gas that's trying to collapse has a little bit of spin, and the spin inhibits the, uh, inhibits the uh, gas from collapsing all at once. Um, well, this, we, we estimated uh, what this process might look like, and interestingly, the, the remnant of gas that's left behind actually turns out to be much more massive than the uh, black hole that collapsed initially. Hmm. And so uh, the quasi-star idea is that you have a black hole collapsing at the center of a very massive cloud, and the gas from the very massive cloud is continuing to pile into the black hole. Well, now um, the radiation pressure that's that's uh, that's exerted as the um, as the gas heats up and the radiation flows out, that radiation has to contend with a much larger uh, gravitational field further out from the black hole. And so we're basically using this envelope to counteract the effects of radiation, and that allows the black hole to swallow matter at a rate that might be even a hundred, ten or a hundred times. Uh, higher, allowing the black hole to grow to uh, huge masses faster than um, initial predictions suggested. So that was the quasi-star idea. Now, the interesting thing about this is we then uh, thought about what such a system would look like. What would it look like if you had a black hole at the center of a very massive cloud um, being puffed up by this escaping radiation, but not being dispersed because the cloud is so massive. Yeah. Well, it turns out that such an object should look like, pretty much like a red giant. <laughs> so we suggested that these very rapidly growing black holes early in the universe might actually not look like quasars, but might look like red giants. In other words, they would be very luminous, but um, the radiation would not look like a lot of X-rays, which is what you have in a quasar, qu uh, ultraviolet radiation, might be more like red. Right. Um, so so this, is, uh, this is just one uh, idea for how, uh, what the rapid growth phase of a black hole might, might look like. And um, one of the possibilities that the, this sort of things might be detectable with um, the James Webb Space Telescope, for example, which we hope will be launched within a year, but its launch date has been within a year for the last five or six years. So uh, we, we're, still, uh, we're still optimistic. Hopefully it will be launched before 2022. That is the space agency? I, I'm sorry, can you repeat that? Uh, is that European uh, Space Agency? Um... No, no, James Webb is a NASA mission. Oh, NASA mission, okay. So, so it's the next gigantic space telescope and it will be a, a six meter mirror, whereas the Hubble Space Telescope is a 2.4 meter, meter mirror. And it is particularly optimized for uh, far infrared radiation. Okay, so so am I thinking about this correctly, Mitch? So the the envelope, the so there is the black hole that is already formed um, by uh, by the general process uh, to get the thousand uh, solar masses or so, but it's sitting in a very large uh, envelope of gas. Yeah. And so in some sense, you know, it's not an incremental process that because of the, of the, the gas, uh, you can have another, another <clears throat> big um, sort of contraction, <laughs> if that's yeah. the right term, uh, 
uh, at the black hole. So it can it can go from you know thousand to ten thousand to hundred thousand, yeah, and and not uh, not build up incrementally. Is that the way to think about it? That that's the that's a good way to think about it. Now you probably can't get beyond uh, maybe a, a a few million solar masses because eventually you'll blow away the envelope. There become some there are some uh, uh, some restrictions on uh, how much more massive the uh, uh, envelope has to be than the black hole in order for this to work, and there are some other limitations. Uh, but this uh, might be a uh, a very helpful intermediate stage in explaining how you could get very rapid growth of the black hole. And, and you mentioned they look, they might look like red giants. So the red giants that we see today, they are truly red giants. Right? They, are they uh, something like this in some cases? Uh, well, the, the red giants we see today are just normal mass stars. Yeah. And uh, the thing that makes this look like a red giant is the nature, the structure of the energy source. Mm -hmm. uh, so what's happening here is that the it's a red giant that's being puffed up and powered by uh, the intense release of energy very close to a very small object in its center. Now, red giants that we see today are stars where the core of the star has contracted to something that's not much bigger than the Earth, and nuclear reactions are just going on in a shell around that star. So it's kind of geometrically analogous to this black hole envelope situation, except in the case of a normal red giant that we see in, you know, in the Milky Way galaxy, we're talking about something with just a mass of the sun or a couple of times the mass of the sun with a very compact core and intense nuclear reactions around that core. Uh, the case of a quasi star, uh, we're seeing a much more massive envelope with the energy source being the gas that's just outside the black hole, sort of in a shell. So it's kind of analogous to the red giant situation. And it's turned, it turns out it's that geometric structure of energy being released in a relatively thin shell that puffs up the envelope and makes it look like a red giant. So it's kind of a very interesting analogy that spans, you know, uh, a factor of, uh, of thousands or tens of thousands of in mass, yeah. but two completely different processes giving you kind of analogous structures. Uh, and how far back do you think uh, James Webb and, and others need to look uh, to find something like this? Uh, we uh, estimate that this kind of process probably did not become relevant until maybe four or 500 million years after the Big Bang. Um, may have peaked uh, about eight, nine hundred million years after the Big Bang, maybe a billion years after the Big Bang and then declined very quickly after that because there was simply not enough gas falling into the center of the galaxy. In other words, at some point, all the gas that has not sort of condensed on the black hole is going to form stars and then it's out of the game. So uh, we think that the, um, uh, that the best place to look is uh, sort of a redshift between about 15 and, and six. Okay. Um, yeah, so uh, that, that's about, um, uh, 500 billion million to about a billion years after the Big Bang. Yeah, still pretty early, uh, pretty early in the um, in the evolution. Yeah. So, and this would be before most large galaxies like the Milky Way formed. So this would still be a process occurring in a fragment proto galaxy that hasn't quite found all of its uh, neighbors yet, that and has not quite formed the final uh, galaxy. 
so, so the sort of timeline wise is sort of uh, in the same zone as as quasars then um well it's in the same zone as these very extreme quasars like the one that was uh, announced this week uh, but actually most quasar activity occurred later oh. uh, at a redshift of uh, three that two to three is the peak of the quasar era and that's actually um, a couple of billion years after the Big Bang. Okay. okay. I want to uh, go into another paper you have, Evolution of Supermassive Stars and mm -hmm. Pathway to Black Hole Formation. Um, so this is sort of another mechanism um, for black hole form formation. You want to talk a bit about that? Yeah. Uh, so actually, this is a phase that we uh, think is probably earlier than the quasi-star phase. So this is actually the question of if you do have this gas that's all coming together and it's going to ultimately form a seed black hole, um, how does it reach the point where it actually collapses to a black hole? And so what we did was we just assumed that matter was uh, coming into the center of the galaxy at a uh, certain rate, which we can actually estimate pretty well. Um, and we asked what happened to that gas. And the question was, uh, is it, does it just sort of accumulate, accumulate, boom, goes into a black hole? And the answer is probably not. And the, the reason is that the gas that's accumulating, as it kind of piles in on the, uh, the pre-existing uh, accumulation of gas, the, uh, it gets hotter and hotter at the center. In other words, you're just feeling the center is experiencing higher and higher pressure. and uh, that not only compresses it to higher densities, but most importantly, it drives it to higher and higher temperatures. Well, what happens when you take a gas and bring it to a high enough temperature is that thermonuclear reactions start. And so uh, what I realized was that um, probably this is a way before you get a collapse uh, to a black hole, uh, you probably form something that's like a supermassive star. In other words, something somewhat like a star in that it's supported by nuclear burning, um, but it's thousands or even tens of thousands of solar masses. Mm. Uh, so what this paper is about is uh, is kind of a study of what these stars would be like. Yeah, it's it just mind-boggling. You know, <laughs> it's difficult <laughs> to imagine uh, a star um, to do a sort of a million solar masses or something along those lines. Yeah. And this is early. So, so all the nuclear burning is, is pure burning hydrogen to helium, right? Um, well, yes, very interesting, um, aspect to that. Um, the process by which the sun, uh, releases nuclear energy is called uh, the proton proton chain. Mm. Okay. So, so, um, you basically, uh, through a, fairly complicated series of nuclear reactions, you basically just add protons together and eventually you get a bunch of helium. Um, that process uh, actually cannot produce enough energy to stop the collapse. Um, because the, the masses of these stars are so high, uh, you actually need a very large nuclear output um, to, um, to support such a star against collapse. And so if all we had was the proton proton chain, these things would just collapse straight to black hole. Uh, what you need is a reaction called the CNO cycle, which is like a, it's a catalyzed reaction. It's like catalysis in, in chemistry 
where where you actually, in order for this thermonuclear reaction sequence to go, you actually need um, nuclei of carbon, nitrogen, or oxygen mm -hmm. atoms uh, in order for the process to be catalyzed. Now, um, there is no carbon, nitrogen, or oxygen right after the Big Bang. Right. The universe is entirely um, hydrogen and, uh, and helium with some other traces, which are not important for this. Um, so actually, you need a little bit of oxygen or carbon or nitrogen for this to happen. And so um, you need to ask where that tiny uh, contamination of, say, carbon is going to come from. And um, it, so it's possible that this process won't actually happen. But it, it seems quite likely that there will be trace amounts of carbon by this point for two reasons. One is... Uh, even though we're saying that this process occurred right after, you know, pretty soon after the Big Bang, it's still about a few hundred million years after the Big Bang. Now, much earlier than that, only maybe 100 million years after the Big Bang or even earlier, stars started to form. And so stars rapidly synthesize carbon. And as soon as those stars go supernova, that carbon gets into the environment. And so even a tiny mixture of carbon, one part in 10 to the eight or something like that, one part in 100 million, is enough to uh, get the CNO cycle going. Uh, the other thing is that <clears throat> you can burn, you can fuse helium to form carbon directly. Yeah, That's called the triple alpha process. And that actually becomes important if the temperature gets high enough. And so the other thing that could have happened is that as this core gets hotter and hotter, it fuses enough helium to give you this contamination by carbon. But once you get a tiny fraction of carbon, then the CNO cycle dominates the thermonuclear reaction. It creates high helium from hydrogen. You don't burn the carbon in this process. Um, and that would stop the collapse for about a million years. Right. And so uh, it seems that there's a hiatus in forming a black hole, even by direct collapse, due to this big accumulating massive gas forming a kind of a supermassive star hmm. so so it sounds sounds like if, if you if you have a small amount of carbon it becomes sort of self-sustaining uh, yeah because you produce a little bit and you produce a lot more energy with it with it uh, as a catalyst and that mm -hmm. keeps the infrastructure in balance um and so could we actually compute or simulate um, what composition is needed for that process to be stable? Um, yeah, I, that that has been done. There there has been some uh, some subsequent work on on working out the details of this thing. And in fact, the idea of these supermassive stars um, was first proposed back in the nineteen sixties uh, by uh, Fred Hoyle and Willie Fowler. So it's been around for a long time. In fact, it was one of the early proposals for. Um, uh, for what powered quasars before uh, people realized that these supermassive black holes were real. Right, right. Um, I want to uh, finish up with one of your recent papers, which is uh, sort of related, but also in a different different area. So strongly magnetized accretion disks, structure and accretion from global magnetohydrodynamic simulations. Um, okay. So... Um, so, you know, the magnetic aspects um, of accretion, uh, it, it plays a big role in both formation of black holes and, and, and all of that, right? So is it yeah. into that? 
Um, yes, well, uh, we've known for some time that magnetic fields are absolutely essential for, um, for all black hole astrophysics. Um, because, uh, as I said near the beginning, black holes are really small targets. Uh, you know, if you just rely on stuff flying around in space and happen happening to hit a black hole, you're not going to have black holes swallowing a lot of matter. Yeah. Um, and so in order for black holes to actually swallow substantial amounts of matter, the matter has to give up its, its swirling motion around the black hole. It's what we call its angular momentum. And the uh, most uh, the most likely candidate for allowing that angular momentum transfer to happen is uh, the action of magnetic fields, which kind of behave like like a cross between a kind of a spring and a uh, and a rubber band. It kind of uh, there are magnetic fields uh, embedded in all the hot gas that we we know of out in space, including the gas that's swirling around a black hole. And as the gas swirls, there's kind of this snapping action of magnetic fields that kind of gradually reduces its spin and allows it to um, to uh, eventually reach the black hole and uh, and enter it. Um, and so we've known that that's the main mechanism allowing accretion, allowing get black holes to swallow gas for uh, for a couple of for about three or four decades now. Um, but one question that's never been resolved is um, exactly what configuration does this magnetic field uh, um, attain in this swirling gas? And in particular, how strong does the magnetic field get? Yeah. So people have kind of tried to work backwards saying, how strong does the magnetic field have to be in order to do this? But uh, we haven't really gotten a satisfactory answer as to what the theory really predicts about how strong these magnetic fields can be. Well, um, as we are able to do better and better um, simulations of the uh, these magnetic fluid processes, um, the uh, picture that's begun to emerge is that these magnetic fields can become much stronger than we expected. Yeah. And so if that actually happens, they are going to ha have a big impact on how gas actually swirls into the black hole. And in fact, uh, what I suspect is that um, these strong magnetic fields can explain a lot of things that so far have been hard to understand about um, what we observe when we observe a, uh, a, a black hole that's swallowing matter. So that's that's what this paper is about. So is there some sort of a crit critical threshold, uh, Mitch? So I I'm just thinking that um, if you get to some level of magnetic pressure, then you mm -hmm. are able to get the gas in. Would that increase the, the magnetic field of the, of the black hole and it can take more gas in? Does it go like that or? Uh, yeah, there seems to be some kind of a bootstrap effect. Yeah. <clears throat> so basically what's happening is that as the gas swirls around the black hole, it stretches the magnetic field into a circular pattern around the black hole as well. Yeah. And the idea is that um, like radiation, magnetic fields also exert pressure. And so the idea is that you're basically twisting the spring or this rubber band so much that it's getting stronger, you know, it's getting more and more um, resilient. And so it begun, begins to puff this gas up around the black hole. And although you might think that that puffing up is kind of resisting the black hole swallowing matter, um, what actually seems to be the case is that it probably helps the black hole swallow matter. Okay. 
And so this mechanism then, uh, again, going back to the different mechanisms that we discussed uh, by which black holes form, this is sort of that incremental process that uh, how does the gas get into the black hole question, right? Yeah. Um, yeah so well, it's a, it's to some extent, it's an incremental process, but to, to another extent, it's actually an unstable process because... Um, what seems to be the case is that if you have only a small amount of magnetic field present initially, you end up with a small amount of magnetic field. If you, on the other hand, raise that, you have a larger amount of magnetic field um, initially because of the environmental conditions. Maybe you're, you're you know, trying to swallow gas that started out with a larger magnetic field. There seems to be a threshold, and beyond that threshold, um, the magnetic field that you end up with uh, grows by a large amount. Mm. So, so a small field goes to a small field, but a moderate field goes to a huge field. And the, and the magnetic field is sort of the property of the black hole. You cannot have a black hole without magnetic field. Oh, yes, sure you can. Um, the, uh, the magnetic field um, in general is a property of the gas between the stars in between the magnet between the black holes and in fact every every uh, every uh, star has its own magnetic field so magnetic fields are kind of an ambient property of the universe um, if you take a black hole um, and just let it sit there it will not develop a magnetic field um, unless there is gas that is pushing in on it that has a magnetic field and then some of that black magnetic field will uh, will appear to be emerging from the black hole actually what you're seeing, is the distortion of an external magnetic field by the black hole. Um, so black holes themselves do not have um, uh, intrinsic fields. In fact, we call uh, a magnetic field um, in, around a black hole, we call it hair. And there's kind of this uh, theorem uh, that usually has the, uh, the slogan, black holes have no hair. Right. So, so a black hole by itself doesn't have its own magnetic field. But a magnetic field imposed on a black hole will interact with it if the black, particularly if the black hole is spinning. Does this um, is this useful to to think about why um, black holes go quiet and then become suddenly active? Well, yes. Um, one of the interactions of a magnetic field with a spinning black hole is that some of the spin of the black hole can be extracted and used to power a jet. And uh, so we, we see these very powerful jets, which are emerging from the regions around black holes. One of the uh, leading theories for how that's, those jets are created is that you're, uh, they're actually extracting the energy from the spin of the black hole. Mm. Um, clearly not practical, but um, presumably we can, we can get energy from a black hole if we can get hold of one, right? Oh, yes, yes. This is the idea of a Dyson sphere. Yeah, and th there was some talk about the planet nine, too. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So, so, so in conclusion, Mitch, um, you know, you look forward five years. I know um, um, what is the, 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 the telescope that you mentioned, um, James Webb, is going up. There are mm -hmm. a few other missions planned by NASA and others. Um, where do you think we will be in, you know, these types of questions uh, five years from now? Uh, well, I'm, I'm hoping that we will have a much clearer, clearer idea of how and when those first supermassive black holes got going. 
we we should with the new in, with the new uh, telescopes, uh, we should be getting pretty close to really seeing all aspects of the era of galaxy formation and beyond, including the uh, the development of these of these first black holes. Uh, I also think we're going to see a lot more exciting results from not only the Event Horizon Telescope but other projects that are able to really uh, go right down very close to the horizon. And one of the things I'm particularly excited about is that the next generation of results from the Event Horizon Telescope may actually show us the jet in the process of formation. Right now we can see the photon ring, but the Event Horizon Telescope is not quite sensitive enough to, um, to see how the jet might connect to that gas that's swirling around the black hole that we kind of see the glow of now. Yeah, I mean, these pictures really capture the imagination of the of the public. I never thought I could see something like that. <laughs> and it, uh, neither did I. Yeah. A lot of us were kind of, we thought it was a great thing to try, but we were not uh, that optimistic that we would see something like this. This is like the best of all possible things we could have expected to see from it. Right, right. Excellent. Yeah, thanks so much, Mitch, for spending time with me. This has Great, thank you. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.